Cool, cool, cool. Episode two. Son of a pitch. Welcome. This is Vince and Max, season two. How are you doing, listener? How are you doing? Why not? I mean, they can't return. No, the, they no, can't tell us. It's a but, useless uh, rhetorical question. But if you were doing uh, not so great, then just message in. You know, we can always chat. That's cool. Um, but slide, if you're slide doing into good, our DMs. yeah, slide into our DMs if you're doing good too. I need more people too. sliding into my LinkedIn DMs. So he just he say, definitely hey. does. He's very lonely. Uh, Super lonely on LinkedIn. Super lonely on LinkedIn. Um, it's actually my LinkedIn bio. I think, oh, I don't know. Like, well, like yeah, maybe. I don't know. It, welcome to episode two. So we haven't gotten any better than episode one, it seems, uh, or season one. Um, the banter is worse in season two, it, it's but the guests are better. Yes. Oh, the, no. Oh. Oh, man. The banter, the banter is worse, but the audio quality is better. The audio quality is better. We finally got that right, um, and this episode is about talking to someone else who runs a podcast and can understand our frustration and pain with regard to the audio quality uh, issues. Yeah, Mark Pollard, uh, founder of the Mighty Jungle Consultancy and the Sweathead Podcast, which Vince and I are avid listeners, and if you're not. Add it to your feed, subscribe, like, rate his podcast. It's it's epic. I'm sure you'll love it if you like this. And he's also released a new book called uh, Strategy Is Your Words. So check all that stuff out. Vince and I are first, uh, uh, first uh, learn about Mark Pollard through a Skillshare course on strategy, which we both took and loved. And it was uh, awesome to have him on after uh, listening to that Skillshare and watching that Skillshare video so many years ago. So this one is as much about going down memory lane for us and yeah. having a bit of a nostalgic play around and talking to Mark about his time in Sydney way back when and him as a kid. It's nostalgic for us. It's nostalgic for Paul. It was nostalgic listening uh, to Pollard's history. He started a hip-hop magazine called Stealth. Sleeping at his desk at Leo Burnett overnight trying to burn CDs so they could stick them to the front of the magazine. All the type of stuff that you go through when you're young and you're entrepreneurial and you have a bit yeah. of fire in your belly, right? Yeah, so he's a really ambitious, smart, switched-on dude. We had a lot of fun talking to him, and his Drambuie response, I think he knocked it so far out of the park. That's right. We, so we get him to revive Drambuie, breathe some life into what you probably uh, don't understand to be a Scottish sort of whiskey with a bit of honey liqueur in it, I think is the, never had is the deal. I've never had it either, so it made the perfect what? brief to go... How the hell do you get young people to start drinking this bloody weird thing? And he did. He he has one of the craziest responses. Not even the Vince, best. Vince. It's just lateral. It was a dram beauty of It was a, a dram beauty of the... Oh, and that's why they pay us the tiny bucks. The medium dollars. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe you're at the medium dollars. I don't know about me yet. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, shout out to BBDO. Tiny bucks, Vince. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, so he kills it. Um, we also talk about Eastern philosophy. We talk about uh, figuring out your life's purpose and how to make strategy kind of life's work and get more out of it and become more you. Yeah. So um, and now I guess it's time for our ad read, which we're not doing in the middle of the show anymore. No. So you don't have Vince singing and or rapping at whatever our old ad read was. It's now just Vince and I saying. Go to Miami Ad School if That's you want to become it. a planner or a creative, and we'll waive your $100 application fee. Just drop us a line at podcastsoap at gmail.com. That's podcast, S-O-A-P, at gmail.com. All right, let's get into the episode. Uh, let's do it. Pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is Son of a Pitch. Dylan. Son of a pitch. All right. Mark Hollard, uh, thank you for coming on the Son of a Pitch podcast. Pretty excited. I listened to three in a row the other day and I felt so homesick that I almost cried. What? And then, <laughs> row, which, uh, which, which one's out of interest? Uh, Leif Stromes. I didn't know that's how you said his last name. And I spent a little bit of time at uh, Tribal DDB and I have seen him do a leg wrestling competition on, a gra- on the ground. <laughs> At some point, and that also when I was in another agency, he came in and presented. I uh, also listened to Tristan Burrell. Still don't think that's how you say his last uh, name. Yeah. Your mate. And, <laughs> and uh, Justin Graham. I used to sit, you know, 
a couple of yards, a couple of meters. Oh my God, I got to do metric a couple of meters away from Justin. So uh, it was really, it was interesting because it's just such an easy type of conversation to get into. You know, there's more shared history, shared cultural references, and the language is similar. Whereas in the Northern Hemisphere, when you're moving around, you kind of spend a bit of time working out what exactly everyone's saying. So I felt homesick. And then by the end of the third one, I think I fell in love with you. Oh, <laughs> my Lord. Well, like to, uh, to, to the point where I, it's not that I would marry you, but I, I might adopt you, you know? That's oh, your, your foster strategy, children. <laughs> we, we can be like two little French bulldogs that you walk around uh, Brooklyn or whatever, or New York, where, wherever you are. You're in Manhattan, aren't you? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in the Upper West Side. I'm not in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. That's where every, everyone I know is down in, downtown or in Brooklyn, and I'm like an hour away, yeah. Yeah, well, Mark, it's uh, surreal speaking to you as well because Vince and I both did your uh, Skillshare strategy course back in the day. So I'm not back, sure back we would be... Not the new back one. Back in the day. The old the, one. The OG one. The OG oh. one. The oh, OG wow. one, like, like I don't six, know, six, seven six years, years ago. ago when Julian yeah. did his. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's, it's cool to see. Yeah, it's, uh, it's cool to be here. And <laughs> to have been seen. <laughs> well, that's what we were going to ask you is like, I feel like the impact you've had on strategies is pretty massive from our point of view, just because you've kind of brought us into it as well as the influence of Julian and all of the other stratas like uh, Rob Campbell, etc., that were out there kind of putting out the word about it uh, back in the day for us. It's back in the day for us, but I guess you, you guys were like deep into it at that time. Um, yeah, do you feel that impact? Are you like getting people like Max and I hitting you up going, man, the reason why we're here is because of you? Uh, it's weird to hear it though, you know, because I definitely, in, in my psyche is this, uh, lonely little outsider boy. And so when people say nice things like that, the lonely outsider boy in me is like, yeah, I don't have any friends. I don't know anyone. By the way, I do have friends, but like, there's this little, <laughs> voice, there's this little voice in my head and, and it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, the past few years traveled from everywhere from like well obviously new york to la down to sao paulo vancouver toronto mumbai last year and people have really intimate stories about the stuff that we all do and you would have these stories now you know someone would talk about uh walking to work in sao paulo and listening to an interview with a particular person and a particular phrase might have stuck with them on that walk and then they want to talk about it and it's uh it's beautiful but I'm not like, I, I know there is some kind of impact because people do talk about it, but uh, I'm just kind of in this uh, self-expression mode and trying to build a life around the things that I want to do. So I'm kind of aware of it, but uh, I just keep going. So it's not, it's, it's, it's there and it's, it surprises me every time, but I love it. Yeah. Got you. I, I guess that's, it's kind of like a motivation for Max and I to be doing the podcast as well. So not only are you like spawning new stratas, but you're spawning new stratas who are talking about strat, which is like, that's pretty cool too, right? <laughs> Total spawn. Although your, your podcast makes me feel bad about mine because yours is so well thought through and edited. And I, I started mine, I just wanted it to be raw. And part of that, there's two key reasons. One is that I felt that there was so much artificiality around strategy, in, especially in the Northern Hemisphere. And that starts with when you're young and you see all these bullshit trademark templates for brain, brand strategy and then you're, you're a two and you're like, oh, that's all nonsense. Um, so part of it was just about trying to get raw uh, with that. And also I just needed to flow. Like I did radio for a while and I love doing it. Uh, I do operate from a sense of introversion, but I have a need to communicate with the world. And I kept getting blocked. I kept blocking myself saying I wasn't good enough or I wasn't ready or it needs to be perfect. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start recording stuff. Uh, and yet when I listen to what you do, first of all, I know how long that would take. So congratulations on the effort there. It does sound super, <laughs> super like professional, but I, like I just needed to flow. And that's where that uh, whole Sweathead podcast came from. You say strategy is uh, artificial in the Northern Hemisphere. Do you think there is some sort of divide between strategy North, South Hemisphere? I don't know. Look, I think the, there are certain stereotypes around the world. Uh, there is a lot of grandstanding, I think, in business. And uh, yeah, in, there is a lot of grandstanding in business in parts of all the world, but definitely in parts of the Northern Hemisphere. The Australian culture is pretty direct, pretty self-deprecating. Sometimes I think it's a bit too self-conscious uh, with its banter and its constant put-downs. But there's a certain like rap battle in most Australian conversations that you realize when you go overseas. And you're like, oh, people <laughs> yeah. really don't want you to do that banter. 
Like, <laughs> you rock up in shorts to work yeah. one day in Australia. Yeah. You're going to hear like 50 comments about that. America, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's, there are different there's pros and cons to all of it. You know, like on the one hand, I just wish Australia would take itself a little more seriously. Like I, I feel that it's banter and put downs are very close to nihilism, like not knowing what to take seriously. And I think the new generations are changing there. Um, but then in America, like that self-importance that, that carries a certain vocabulary with it, same in England as well. There are people who work in those environments who are able to p- speak in a plain way. It's just that that's not what they've been rewarded for. And it's a big risk. Right. Yeah, we've we've stalked your uh, Twitter account, um, and we've read through all your recent your recent tweets, and you you do seem to be touching a lot upon that Americans are obsessed with talking about their career. It seems to be a real recent frustration of yours. Um, why why do you think Americans are are, are so career focused and so career career obsessed compared to Aussies? Yeah, it's. I mean, some of these things are just brain farts that I happen to I, I design in Keynote or just quickly draw and put out there. And I, I do think the Americans are curious about how outsiders see them, how people from other places see them. As long as you're trying to contribute and not just tear them down, you know, there are, people are open open to these thoughts. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if any of my thoughts on this are original, but I, I do think America really exists for the corporation. It's a capitalistic country, right? And also the early days of religion here, from what I understand, being a special and important individual meant you were guaranteed a place in heaven. So you have this weird coming together of religion and, and uh, capitalism, uh, which is through Protestantism and Calvinism, I think. And there are just symptoms of it all over the place. Like I often work out at cafes and if I don't have my noise cancelling headphones with me, the number of times I'm surrounded by people having conversations about their career and their boss. <laughs> and I'm like, just shut up. Just go like, just put something weird on the internet. Go make something. It's so, and it's funny because it's not just people in our industry. It's all the industries. And that stuff yeah. happens, happens everywhere. It happens in Australia, but yeah. I feel like it follows me here. Yeah. Well, the the other thing that you've been talking about recently is kind of this merging of career and life and making career actually life's work, right? Which is like, how do you kind of like transcend career to become not just career and boring job stuff into kind of like an actual creative pursuit, life's pursuit, something that's that's more meaningful than just sitting down at the table and doing the do. Oh, we're going to talk a little bit of individuation, are we? <laughs> hey, man, you brought it up on your podcast millions of times. <laughs> yeah. So, look, I have a point of view on this, but there are infinite points of view on how to exist in the world, and they all carry positives and negatives. Uh, I need to express, I need to have a sense of meaning with what I do. Other people might be really good at just meditating and living on a mountain and being self-sustaining. I might enjoy that for like half a day then i'd probably go a little bit stir crazy not that i couldn't adapt and it's not that one thing is better than the other it's just like here's here's how i'm understanding things uh and at the same time we're surrounded by people who've made these decisions uh you know you often read uh, letters or books about art like famous artists when they were young or letters written by the famous artists and they always had such a strong sense of self you know, people like James Joyce, just reading about him, let alone what he's done, uh, one of Ireland's most fam- famous writers and probably one of the most important literary figures in all time. I mean, he, he was so steadfast in his ways that he was like, screw you, Ireland. You're not here. You're not there for me. I'm leaving. Uh, and, and so this sort of sense, strong sense of identity is something that I've yearned for because my brain jumps around a lot. Uh, grew up in a family that, you know, we bounced around a little bit as well. And so I think... I'm trying to cure my sense of neuroticism with like, here's what I'm trying to do and and arguing against it. It's not for everyone. I think it's easy to idealize. I think also when young, that's that individuation thing, like becoming the individual who you are. If you believe in a self, if you believe in in an individual, you just got to go through some shit. You might be like late thirties, forties and then hit it. Or I know people in their seventies and eighties who act like babies. Maybe you never hit it. Maybe you're never like individuated. You just end up retiring and then you die. So it's, again, it's not like there has to be one way for everyone. Uh, it's a journey that I'm on. Uh, I believe in it, especially for people who want to do creative, self-expressive work. Well, speaking of uh, creative and self-expressive work, <clears throat> I know Vince and I are um, really interested in strategists who have this entrepreneurial flair to them. Uh, and I guess that we want to we talk about how you came 
um, to start a rap magazine in your early 20s. And how, how, what, can you tell us the story about that? How did that come about? What, how did that uh, pursuit form? Oh, little nostalgia, little nostalgia. I want to talk to. I want to talk to you guys about when you're going to move to New York. I've, I've listened to the interviews. I'm like, they're totally thinking about moving to New York. <laughs> the first issue came out in 1998. A few months before, I had taken over Sydney's longest running hip hop radio show. It was called the Mothership Connection. A guy called Miguel de Souza did it. We made this thing at the top of UTS near Chinatown and Broadway, the top floor, floor 26 from memories. One of the ugliest buildings still is. But I got, got a lot of memories up there. You know, I was up there at least every Tuesday for two to three hours. I would sometimes be in there in the middle of the night recording interviews with people like Guru from Gangstar on reel-to-reel cassette tape. And uh, after I sort of took over that radio show, which is just a fluke of history, really, uh, I decided to that I had more work to do, that I really wanted to get underground rap voices out into the world they weren't getting a lot of coverage there was a bit of a return of hip-hop back then largely through a couple of videos that happened to have break dancers in them and then the x games came and kind of got rap and then break dancing involved but it was still super underground uh again and uh i guess throughout a lot of my life if I've seen someone do something and I thought I wanted to do it or I could do it I would just do it I'd, I'd made a crappy website about rap and just decided that I wanted to do something in print. You know, I'd written, I was a writer. I liked to try to be, to write, to be read. And so I just created this thing. I found a printer who had toured a group called Young, the Young Black Teenagers. Is that what they were called? He, he, he owned a printing company in, what's that area near Paddington? Down from uh, Oxford Point. Street. In between Oxford Street and Potts Point. Anyway, he had, he had a printing shop oh, down there. Next. Yeah, around there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he said, whatever money you can raise through advertising, uh, we can put towards printing this magazine. And the first few were really ugly. Uh, but I raised like 1100 bucks, and I was 20 years old. Uh, I was staying back at work to learn how to teach. Like, I taught myself how to use most of the software. And I just did it, and I kept going. Like, I've always been like that. Even though like, it's kind of funny to reflect on it now, because if I think back to my mental health and emotions over the year, super roller coaster. But there's something in me that still makes me want to work and create and produce. And uh, maybe they go together, maybe they don't. So that's the short story of it. Did it for 10 years, 14 issues. It's good fun. Yeah, well, that magazine, like, it, maybe, it was, um, maybe it was kind of like a bit raw at the start. But it, it ended up being something that was full color with, like, gloss covers. And, like, the, the, man, it was, it was pretty intense. I mean... Coming from like a regional area, I used to pick up that magazine being interested in hip hop and that was it. And even like the CDs that you used to get with it were like incredible. So that was like, that's a hell of a lot of work to be, to be doing by yourself. Like, did you just run yourself into the, into the ground trying to get that up? Because we can hardly get up a podcast that's recorded over the internet. Like, <laughs> Well, like, I mean, it wasn't just by myself. Uh, you know, the last few issues, I had a guy called Ben Funnel. You'd know his work. He uh, runs a design company with his wife, Nerida, called April 77. They've designed Hilltop Hoods. Like they're, they're like prolific in the design of, uh, of hip-hop album art and have been for over a decade down in Australia. Uh, Blaze, or Idiot Proof, he was a huge contributor. He would help me get the graffiti section together, which was 10 to 14 pages. He's just this hip-hop nerd, loves it, lives it into really obscure stuff. He set up one of the early hip hop uh, record stores in uh, in Sydney as well, and it, it, that morphed into Next Level Records, where uh, Amato, that was his name back then, Doctor Fibes, now known as Benedict, uh, he sort of I think took it over, changed the name. Uh, but there are a lot of people who contributed and helped, Josie Styles, Adam Stanlake, and some of these people were still super active and, and known in the music scene there. So it wasn't just me, but I did burn out pretty much every issue I was, I was like it was just so much more difficult back then as well so it's not just the effort to write and to collate and to design and lay out and sell ads and fulfill subscriptions you know my wife was a massive help with all of that stuff too it's that like you had to stay up all night sometimes to burn the cd rom with your files on it and sometimes <laughs> yeah. sometimes the cd rom burner or whatever they were called didn't work so it's like three, yeah. like oh my god i've got to burn this thing again it's, it's that kind of stuff that was uh difficult and frustrating yeah well i i feel like uh it was appreciated by the scene at least uh at the time like it was kind of it's kind of the only one out there that was that was really like super legit um but so 
that as like a catalyst for bringing people to you within that scene. We kind of feel the same way about the pod. Like once you start creating these things, it starts to draw people in. Have you noticed that with your podcast as well? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's funny. I did some work with uh, an agency nearby. And w- when you're doing your own thing, a lot of people who run agencies, if they like you, they sniff around you and try to work out whether they can hire you. And I'm like, sorry, was I giving off those vibes? What's all that about? I'm, like, <laughs> what? I'm not giving off like for hire vibes. And the person said, oh, I get it. You just want to put yourself in the middle of as much opportunity as possible. And I hadn't really thought about it like that before. I, I-, I think... I think I'm aware of what you're talking about and I don't want to be disingenuous, disingenuine, but I have a need to express as an introvert. That's how I seek love. You ready for an adult conversation there, boys? Uh, like it's how, it's, how, it's how I seek love and it's how I give love and um, that comes first and foremost. Uh, you know, that, that comes first and foremost. The, everything else is still a surprising bonus. Yeah, well, it feels like, like as you said, uh, being disingenuous is kind of is is the thing, right? Because the only reason why these things work is because they're authentic and they come from a place of love. Otherwise, people wouldn't get around them. Like people tend to see through fake shit pretty easily, right? Like it, it like is the advice for people to go out there and kind of start making things is that like advice that that you would give to people especially like young people like like us or other young people is to get out there and actually create shit and put it into the world yeah that's basically my leading piece of advice to anyone but only to people who have a need to self-express and then you express because you need to it becomes potentially this beautiful thing that you do something then you do it again you do it because you have to then you do it again all of a sudden a year or two or three in you're like i've got a whole catalog here holy crap as opposed to am i allowed to create something and put it into the world you know because a lot of people will come to people like us for uh how do i get a job I'm like, I don't want to answer that question. Like, that's not even a very interesting question. The, mm. the thing is, like, why are you alive? What are you trying to put into the world? What community do you want to be around and contribute to? And then go do that. And then the other thing will take care of itself. I believe uh, that there's a whole bunch of privilege that comes with a simplistic notion like that. But you make stuff because you have to make stuff. And over the years, you realize that if you are, uh, if you flirt with bad mental health, you will see these patterns where you're like, oh, my God. I feel crap because I haven't expressed myself properly in a long, in a long time. Uh, again, simplistic. But So then you go create, you go do something, you're like, oh, I feel a little bit better. That's cool. I should do more. And then you keep going. So I think you've got to do it because you need to do it. You have a deep-seated need to do it. Don't look for permission. Uh, it's a great way to learn. It's a great way to meet people. Not everyone has those needs, though. Yeah, Mark, you're obviously like a very um, self-reflective dude and a very self, self-aware guy. But not everyone, I guess, has has that luxury. How did you come to what your your core values are, and what? Yeah, this is where <laughs> Mark's eyes just went 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 bananas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's got to be some stuff that's innate, and then I'd say there's a bunch of stuff that happened growing up that made me wary of people and made me examine people and take something of an outsider point of view. And sometimes when you take that point of view, you have to work out how to be in a way that other people who don't feel those things might take for granted. So I think that's where the analysis of it all comes from. And then having interviewed thousands and thousands of people, you learn lots of different ideas. Uh, I think Podcasts and YouTube, especially in the past three or four years, have been amazing with the explosion of philosophy and psychology content and new research that's out there. And so my brain just takes it all in and um, I am introspective. You know, I was back in Australia at the end of last year and I, I feel alienated often in Australia because I like this kind of conversation. It's really hard to have it in Australia. Uh, and when I get into it, and I get it because it's annoying. It must feel like annoying. But sometimes like I, had it in, I was there for four days and I was told that I was deep four or five times. I'm like, you know, I write, you know what I do for a living? Like, this is just a weird thing to say to somebody. <laughs> yeah. I spent their entire life writing and expressing and thinking about things and they earn money from it and they're known to be doing that stuff. It's like, are you just saying that you don't, you're, like, you're deep, which just is a way for you to say, escape. <laughs> it was funny. Yeah, yeah. Especially what, what you... you to bring up another one of your tweets, you talked about 
uh, I guess, like the psyche of, of Australians, but more so Australian men being incredibly, you know, macho and, and being in line. And, and I think one of your quotes was, fuck, fuck learning. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I, I think the Australian male, male psyche is pretty violent. I think Australian, I think men have, it's on there. I just, I think, I, I think there are other ways of living where you don't have to be on edge all the time. New York's pretty chaotic and it's crazy and you don't know what's going to happen. There's an edge in Australia. Uh, and I don't know if it's just from, like, I mean, I used to get all over that city between my parents' places. I had teenage years in Glebe and it was rough and people carried weapons, but you know, it was also, there were also nice parts of it. Right. And I'm not saying I was tough or anything, but I was constantly on edge thinking about like you get threatened by cops as a teenager quite a few times, uh, let alone local um, gangs getting into fights, seeing stabbings at local Glebe high, high school and people flooding into the place where I used to do Thai boxing, like without a man in the house, without like physicality or support. So like I'm, I might be too sensitive to some of these things. Uh, I just, you know, I just think Australian men need to learn how to hug each other a little bit. And, and, and also I think that a lot of boys don't, get empathy growing up so they don't know how to show it so as a culture as a society we shouldn't be surprised when men don't have as much empathy mm. some of that might be innate but I, th I think when you're young and you're continually told to turn off which is stere stereotypical behavior but i see it enough i hear about it enough you know we're not creating a uh, a society or societies that are going to be capable of, of love in a big way and i think that's part of why we're in these crazy political situations that we're in around the world right now did were you, did you have friends like that when you were growing up that were, that were into the footy and like you know punching on i mean you said you did thai boxing and stuff so obviously you're around um a couple of tough nuts in your time like like how did you feel as separated from them when you were growing up yeah I, I, look i was around it in the way that when you grow up in glebe and you're kind of attracted to hip-hop and uh, graffiti not that i was any good at it uh you just come across these things rave culture was big in the early 1990s definitely as a younger kid made my way into warehouses around homebush where nothing else was there and it's probably a stupid thing to do in uh in in retrospect <laughs> Uh, and then yeah, did uh, did Wing Chun down in Surrey Hills with a guy called uh, Sifu Rick Spain, who's pretty well known around those parts for like eight years, nine years or so. Not always full time, but for, for long enough. Um, carried weapons as a teenager. Sometimes used them to cut myself to make myself feel feelings because I felt like I had no feelings. It's a silly thing that a lot of people actually go through. It's not unusual, and I'm trying to talk about these things in a way that doesn't make them weird. But the violence thing's funny for me personally because. Uh, I've been to therapy a couple of times and for some reason the first sessions I just tell all my stories that I can't tell other people and there are tens and tens maybe not hundreds but tens and tens of I've just been around a lot of uh, like violence either in the moment or secondhand or people who've experienced it but I've not really had like severe situations I used to pull people out of fights that was kind of my role uh, I once got attacked by 15 kids in, in a in like a Chinatown gang in Darling Harbor when I was like 14 or 15 because they wanted my $2 red bandana because that was back in the days <laughs> when like Bloods and Crips were getting coverage, I guess. I don't know what that was about. Somehow got out, wasn't hurt at all. And um, But I laugh about all these things now a little bit. And I was thinking if I ever did a stand-up comedy show, which I've, I've never done stand-up comedy, I would call it Mediocre Predator. And a whole section of it would be how pathetic I am at violence because I just have so many stories of being around it. And I, I apologize by the end, you know, there's this, there's this one funny story I can tell. Uh, there's a couple of clubs on Oxford street that started to get into playing hip hop in the, back in the day. And it was, it was new for Oxford street to host hip hop gigs. Breakdancing was big. Breakdancing circles would break out. And I remember going down to one of them with my wife. What was it called? Good bar. Mr. Good bar. Is that still around? Oh, uh, not that I know of. No, I don't no. so. And, uh, you know, I, I remember that back then, like they were charging oh, four or five bucks for a VB. And I was like, that's a rip off. I'm not paying that. <laughs> I, only had, I only had 10 bucks for the night or maybe even less. And my wife came to one of these shows and she was dancing at the front of this, uh, like watching the break dancers dancing up front. And a guy came up and grinded behind her. Then she came over to me upset and the guy walked past. So I grabbed him by the neck and threw him up against a pylon. And he said, sorry, man, I didn't know she was with anyone. And I'm like, yeah, fair enough. Sorry about that. Don't be mean to women. Like, that's how pathetic I am at violence. You know, it turns into some weird lecture about not hurting women. <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I feel that there's, I want to think a lot more about this topic and uh, your question is just getting all this. <laughs> That's good. Random like stuff it. is uh, the DNA of the Son of a Pitch podcast. Yes, exactly. Um, I guess, yeah, jumping ship from your philosophy on, you know, masculinity and work-life balance. Let's talk uh, your philosophy on uh on strategy and how that's come to be and and I guess how that's evolved from working with people like Justin Graham and uh, and Todd Sampson. Yeah, look, I was, I was a, a bit of an experiment for Todd Sampson. Came into contact with him when I was 27 or 28. I'd largely been working in digital agencies, doing digital agency work, even though the word digital is a bit of a funny adjective. It was back then, it still is. And the experiment was this. Could you take someone who's grown up what, doing a rap magazine, doing radio and making digital things and add brand strategy chops to that person and turn them into something that's a little bit different. That was the experiment. And so what I'd, what I'd always tried to do is bring together everything that I was exposed to. And at Leo Burnett and even at McCann when I was there, I would walk the halls, I would work with the shopper promotion team, direct marketing, the media teams, and I would contribute where I could. And I would just learn all the different concepts that I could. You know, I wasn't one of these brand strategists or account planners who had their nose in the air about doing anything other than writing a creative brief or doing anything other than like the traditionally heroic stuff. I wanted the halls, talk to people, worked out how to work differently because I'd come from a world like the the hip hop world back then is like, you are measured by what you do. You don't get to just be your fancy and intellectual. You go put on an event, you release a record, you distribute the record, you make a magazine, you sell the magazine. And so there was a little bit of a culture shock when I was around people who, well, first of all, when they're like, we've got a small budget and it's like, you should try making a rap magazine uh, or putting on a hip hop event that you know, a few hundred people come to. And then the second one was if it got too intellectual and uh, procrastination-like. So that, that's really where a lot of the early philosophy came from uh, through Leah Burnett and Sydney, through Todd. Uh, he had this philosophy of collaborative problem solving, CPS. He would give us one page job descriptions that were about that. They were clear in their ambition for the company. They were clear on the five things you needed to do. They weren't these five or 10 page sprawling American HR things with big language that doesn't mean anything. Uh, I would see behavior from him as well, like at the end of the year, because he wasn't yet CEO. He was having a baby, you know, but I think they were grooming him for it. And, and, you know, at the end of the year or every six months, there would just be one, an email saying, what's one thing we could do better to the whole company? And so I saw this interest in problem solving and lateral thinking mixed with a very straightforward management style uh, and very minimalistic uh, at the same time, like, I don't think he was around that much. Like we didn't see him that much. I had a few good talks, quite relate to him. He's got an interesting background as well. I, I don't know how much of, that he to- actually talks about in public, but he wasn't, he wasn't there a lot. We kind of just got on with it. Right. And what's funny is then you are used to that world and that place did and does amazing stuff. There were young kids there winning can awards all the time. I've been in massive companies here, thousand people, uh, maybe up to 2000 people in a single building. The agency owns the building they would die to earn one can award in their entire career, maybe two. And I've walked those halls with young Leah Burnett people from Sydney who've moved to America, who've won them every year and they are treated and looked at like gods. It's incredible. So it took all of that for granted before I moved, but the, the personal philosophy does really come from not just Leah Burnett and, 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 and Todd, but also there's, there's probably is a little bit of like a hip hop shadow in it as well. One thing that Todd's kind of known for, and you, you touched upon it there, was the, the minimalist um, kind of nature of his work. I've seen decks where he doesn't do anything like past six slides. Um, is, is, that, is that something that, that you kind of picked up when you were learning from, from him and were around him? Do you try to keep kind of minimal or did you just develop your own style? And what do you, what do you think's important with that, with house style and developing your own sort of style and way to do things? Yeah, I think it's important to have your own way to do things. Uh, I've, I've seen decks like that from him. The ones that the management team used to present to the agency were usually not formatted much or, or very well. Uh, they just got on with it, but they're always very intentional about what they wanted to communicate. Also, it's very easy as you get on to romanticize all these things. You know, I definitely took parts of that Leo Burnett experience for granted. I was there for about three years. It's easy to romanticize. There are definitely things that I absorbed into what I do, but I kind of, <laughs> I'm emotionally stuck in my life in other places, not in, the, in, in that particular place. Um, and what I, there's another uh, idea that I actually came 
I came across through the four hour body, the four hour workout, four hour yeah. body. And it was minimum required effort, MRE. Yeah. And that's people working out how to get as big as possible by doing as little as possible. And I really like it. So when I work with people now, I try not to do big presentations. I largely work in Google, undesigned, unformatted Google documents. If someone wants an audit, I'll give them a page or two summary of the audit. I'm not interested in assembling 100 slides that nobody will ever use. I write these strategy stories, which are these one page. Uh, I don't mean that name in any kind of self-serious way, but I, I write these things before I write a, write a creative brief. And it's basically my argument for the brand. And they're a key deliver deliverable. Most projects will have three. I've done up to seven on one particular project. And so there is something about that minimalism that I've, I've tried to maintain. Uh, so, yeah. Well, it, it's cool. I mean, but the award thing as well, like if people were kind of looked at as gods for winning awards and then going over to the US is that is that advice for Aussies looking to go over now like do you need to win awards to make it big in New York you were telling us that you know it seems like we're gonna come over pretty soon like how do, how do, how do we set ourselves up to make that transition to do, do, do I need to start making some award-winning work at calm before I even think about it or uh, no you can do whatever you want wherever you want whenever you want you could come here right now uh, I mean, there's so many questions in that one particular question. I, I like how you've uh, made it my suggestion that you're going to move here. It's freaking obvious. <laughs> Have you ever listened to your own podcast? Come on. Um, look, I, I, I think it's just, there's like a hygiene. Oh, there's a hygiene in making things for the sake of it. So you're doing that, right? It helps you practice. It helps you learn. You get a sense of what you're interested in life in in life you meet people so that's good winning awards is definitely useful it's a shortcut being in a in an agency with a good name is a shortcut from what i understand in uh, in industries or wh where we have decisions to make and the and the choices are ambiguous and for us that choice could be who do i hire then really easy references of credibility are important. So look, if you've worked at a Droga 5 and you've won five awards and you're 26, you're probably going to have a good five or 10 year career ahead of you. It'll end after that, by the way. I'm joking. <laughs> um, but so that, that ambiguity in the hiring process is really important. And so having these social signals or these, yeah, these signals will get you in the door. Yeah. Do you do you believe in the in the award thing though, or are you like if if you were a agency boss, are you just looking to have a good conversation with someone? Well, I've looked at hundreds of CVs in America, and it's hard. Like especially if you're in America already, I've, I've interviewed people who've worked at agencies that have really good reputations, but they don't always have work to show. And so you're like, so what did you do? And they're like, oh, I just worked with the creatives, helped them come up with some ideas. I'm like, which idea? Oh, you know, like all the ideas. That, and you're like, come on, you get to you get at some point you need to be specific. Yeah. Uh, and so you got that. And at the same time, there's so much like career materialism over here. There's a lot of pressure. You got to stand out from such a young age. Like basically, when you're three or four years old, you to work out how to stand out in some in some communities and so people are very can be often from privileged backgrounds at least very good with their personal narrative their personal story and it's like i don't really care like show me what you've done because if you really cared about this stuff you would have done stuff like that's what yeah. i want that's what i want to talk about i don't want to look at the cv show me three projects you've done tell me about that zine you started when you're 18 years old you did community radio too cool let's talk about that like that's where it becomes interesting so uh your question that it's a little problematic because you got to get someone's attention first. Yeah. And the, and the best way to do it, there's a book called Obliquity by John Kay. The whole hypothesis of the book is that the best way is the indirect way. So the indirect way for us would be for you to do something amazing and someone recommends you, right? You know this, we yeah. all know this. So they're not going to recommend you if it's just a CV or unless they really like you, you know, what's, what's the difference between Mark Pollard now and like 12 years ago, Mark Pollard, uh, have you, do you feel like the same person or, have you, uh, or are you a bit different these days? <laughs> my kids and my marriage are definitely 12 years older. Uh, and I feel like I've aged about 10 years in the past two years for some reason. <laughs> That's because I turned 40. Um, what's changed? I think I have a better sense of what I'm doing in life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I feel childlike for saying that. And yet, I think it's really good to feel childlike in saying that. 
So a little bit more self-aware. I have more critical thinking tools. Uh, I've really rediscovered my love for writing and for drawing and uh, for, for certain things. So I've definitely changed. I've evolved, yeah. Mark, going back to when you were saying uh, when, if you're interviewing someone, you, you want them to speak about work that they've done that they're super proud of. What's some uh, strategy uh, briefs or, or, or some strats that you've written that you, that you place on your high shelf that you're super stoked about that you'd like to, to discuss with us? So one of the reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing right now is because I found it really hard to make good work in America. I had to detach myself and I was running teams. All right. So I had my own clients, but I was running teams and that is the work like running, running the team. That's the work. But at the same time, I, in Australia, when I was still really learning what I was doing, I did expect us to make great work every month or two. And I've had great work made off crappy creative briefs. I wrote, so it's that question is a tricky one for me and I'm not embarrassed by my answer because I feel like I'm pretty strong in what I do now. I do a lot of it, do a lot of it in public. Uh, yeah. If anyone ever wants to call me out, I'm like, well, let's do something right now. And then you get to judge. Like, don't worry. I judge awards. I see case studies. I see portfolios. I know what, I know the quality out there. Like I can, I can hang. It's totally cool. I think once people hear your Drambui answer, they'll, they'll know. Oh, God damn it. It's a pretty funny <laughs> But it was, it, was, it was really difficult here. And so, you know, I remember Todd Sampson actually brought in a, like a brief review system. Leah Burnett had a, a rate, idea rating system for the creative. Yeah. And I think we just did it once. And I got like a 7 out of 10. And it was for a brief for Canon that, uh, what, did, what did I say? Like it was a really good camera that had come out. And I, I think I used the word stun or shock. I just used a slightly different word. And it was like a three-line single-minded proposition. I can't even remember it. And it led, it led to like a cool campaign because... Leah Burnett was really good at concepts and art direction. And I really, I think art direction has disappeared a little bit under pressure from the social media calendar and stock photos and, and price. But I got like a seven out of 10 for one of my early creative briefs as a 28 year old. I was pretty happy and I thought it was a solid campaign. Um, I was around a lot of work at Leah Burnett that was pretty effective and, and pretty well known. The two that I can say that I definitely was in the room at the time. Uh, one was yeah. for McDonald's. It was called the name at Burger. I had a meeting with a young client and uh, he wanted to find out our digital capabilities. We had a coffee in, uh, where was it? Milson's Point, Mamans Point, one of those. And uh, the project had been going on for a while. I don't, I think there'd been lots of rounds of review and the, it wasn't quite clicking. And I just said to this guy, like, why don't we get people to name this burger? Like it hadn't been done. This is a long time ago. It's a bit of an obvious idea right now. This is really early social media days. And uh, one of the teams came up with the name, the name at Burger. Another team came up with, with this hilarious character who was a retiring burger naming legend and the guy who acted him was in Skippy and and it kind of moved through the building in a way when there was no creative brief I'd written to Todd Sampson when I got back from this meeting and said hey what about this and they did it but when I actually and it won on like an APG gold and when I published it on my website I had someone a copywriter write a comment going you had nothing to do with this you're such a liar I'm like no what um, and then the other one that kicked things off was for Canon and uh, I, was, I was trying to shift people, work with people to shift them from just doing print and TV into actually having you know, non-advertising ideas that you could advertise. That was kind of like the jargon that we would use back then. And I had a, an awesome client who spent a bit of time in America, actually, is back in Australia now. And we mapped out what this thing could look like. And it ended up becoming a campaign called Photo 5. And the idea there was 2,000 people were sent five, four objects in a box. And the box was one object and there were photo, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a brief for, what do you call it? Why are my words disappearing right now? But basically they had to use, they had a week to work on one object and put it in a photo. So it was a photography competition. And a few years later that turned into something that I wasn't involved with called uh, photo chains. I think that one titanium at Cannes uh, in France. So, they're examples of the work that I loved. That's what I thought advertising was. I wasn't as interested back then in television ads. I was interested in these ideas people could do stuff with. That's what I thought it was. And uh, I feel like right now it's less like that and way more just like ads and videos and manifestos and social media calendars and hashtags and all that kind of stuff. I, I have a question because you mentioned there the, that uh, one of the copywriters kind of like 
blew you up on, online about being involved with the campaign. This this is an issue that strategists run into all the time. Is like being credited alongside the creatives for the work that gets out there. Um, you know, I, I've had this idea recently about going through campaign brief and seeing all of the, like counting all of the agencies that credit planners on on work as they go through it and rating the, the agencies based off that. But is the, like, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you, how do you kind of like get involved in that way and get recognition for some of the work? Because sometimes work that I've spent like, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 weeks maybe doing that gets shot like, and you know, you, you kind of like, you feel like you can't even claim it. Like, like what, what's the deal there? Yeah. And, and also it depends how you're claiming it. I mean, I wrote from memory, I wrote that case study more as a we than as a me. Uh, it was McDonald's most effective sales promotion, I think in Australia ever, they rolled out in New Zealand. It won awards in all these different categories. And back then that was uncommon. Everyone was like, what is that? Is that an ad? Is it a this? And it's like, no, it's all the things. And it would win awards in all the things. I, I don't really know because there's some pretty shitty characters in the industry and they really hate thinking that someone helped them do something. Uh, at the same time, I think a lot of strategists make it difficult for themselves too. So I don't, I don't have a strong point of view on this. I think the thing that we corrected is if we all got together and made a website, which was about which agencies are good for planners and that that would be one of their criteria and you'd just score them and that would start, you'd start to see some behavior change through that. But otherwise you're dealing with some, uh, difficult characters who are under a ton of pressure and if they can get one piece of work out that's amazing in a year they might be able to double their salary uh, while maybe they're frustrated that they're not making novels or doing their paintings or making movies right so it's you know, I try to be sympathetic to to that vibe but in Australia the creative departments I was around I found them really really kind of alpha and rah, I don't never seen that in New York at all yeah true well, I think uh, getting creative and, and owning the process is probably a, a bit of a good segue to the next bit because we're going to ask you uh, what your answer is to our amazing uh, Drambuie brief from strategy right all the way through. So, Max, did you want to, uh, do you want to go over the brief and, and get us stuck in there? Yeah, let's do it. Also, before we start, when you when you eventually start your agency with uh, Julian Cole, what what are you what are you going to call it? I'll let you know in a month. I'm joking. Oh, I don't know. Hey! I don't know. <laughs> All right. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you don't know what you're going to call it, or uh... I, I always I always find the names of what people want to call their agency just super interesting. Yeah, look, we, we were having a meeting in February just to discuss what we've been doing. You know, we had this amazing year last year doing this thing yeah. called the, super, the Supersize Omega Class. It's a silly name, but we like to have fun with things. Uh, and uh, the theme for this year, by the way, is going to be even sillier. It's going to be uh, Fuck Yeah Cannon. Hang on, what is it? The theme for this year is going to be even funnier. It's going to be uh, Fuck Yeah Rainbow Cannons because, look, I can be in a dark place a lot of the time, but, you know, what we get to do in the world is fucking five rainbows all over the place. So that's what the, the thing, we're going to build the metaphor around it, uh, around the event, around this fuck yeah, rainbow cannon. Uh, but we're, we're trying to work out how to work together. We sort of have always competed and cooperated. We have really frank conversations. We've traveled to lots of different places together. So it's a good question. I don't, I don't have a clear answer to it. I don't, I don't mean to be too, too funny or evasive either, but we're, we're trying to work out how to work better together because we've got a bit of chemistry right now. Yeah, now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what will be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy, and solution. Woo! First time. Let's do a one, one take. Drum up demand for Drambui. Background. Drambui's story is the stuff of le legends. After the Battle of Culloden... In 1746, Prince Charles Edward Stuart fled to the Isle of Skye. There, he was given sanctuary by Captain John McKinnon of Clan McKinnon. According to a family legend, after staying with the captain, the prince rewarded him with a prize drink recipe. And that drink was Drambui. Fueled by the energy of its mythos, the whiskey shot to international acclaim, and most especially in the 80s. If you asked any stockbroker or off-the-street yuppie whether or not they wanted a Drambui, they'd probably tell you they already had one. 
The regular, working class on the other hand, well, we'll let this market research footage we found do the talking. What about when you... When you run out of everything else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll probably have some of that. Three words, three words. It's not for a rough bloke like me. Not for a rough bloke like you? Yeah? So what sort of blokes are it for? Maybe, you know, guys that wear skirts and love to get dressed up as girls and all that sort of thing. Maybe. I don't know. But that's not my sort of thing. <laughs> Business people, maybe? Yeah. Uh, Up-class people? Right. A lawyer, someone professional. I've found that most rich people have got taste in their ass. Not for you? <laughs> nah, not for me. Mate. What sort of person drinks this, mate? Puffs. Yeah? Yeah. Alright. I heard you like it, but. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You got the meat raffle tickets wet yet. Today, the liquor is nowhere to be seen. Unless you're 50 years old and spend your weekends talking about franking credits, it's likely you even you either haven't heard of or would ever even consider ordering the drink. And this is a massive problem. Without a new generation of drinkers to bring forward the legend that is Drambuie, the brand will likely fold. The problem? No one under, well, no one under 35 is drinking Drambuie. The task? Make Drambuie the under 35 year olds drink of choice. Your criteria of success? Make Drambuie the top selling whiskey within the under 35 demo in either US, UK or Australia, whatever you're comfortable with. Your budget is 1 million production and 8 million meter. And as always, we've asked you to respond in the taking the piss son of a pitch format. That's problem, insight, strategy and solution. Mark, how'd you go? Well, first of all, making this drink the drink of choice for people under 35, tell him he's dreaming. <laughs> you, know how much, you know how expensive it is? I, I, I've never had it before. I went to the shop and I was like, if, if it's you know, priced nice, I might get some. It's like 55 bucks for a bottle, $30 for half a bottle. I said, no thanks. No thanks. Not going to do it. <laughs> and so I think you've got a little bit of a pricing and a product problem that you need to solve for this to really take off. But I've still played with it. I've still played with this and I, I think there's something in, in here. You didn't do any market research for the, for the pod? Uh, I mean, I asked people at some of the events I've been doing lately, like who's drunk Drambuie and like two hands would go up out of 50 people. So it was a little bit hard to, to wow. drunk it. I dug around online. I visited a couple of stores. Uh, but the thing is, as I played with your brief and by the way, that it's a really clear headed brief. And when I see pieces of paper like that, it's also just one page and I see clear headed writing, it, it hits me immediately. And so it was, it was, it was a beautiful thing to play with a little bit intimidating in its clear headedness as well. I don't see a lot of documents like that. Uh, but the funny thing is, is that the problem as you gave it is that Drambui is what old people drink. And immediately I had some thoughts and I didn't want to do problem behind the problem. It did take me back to a Levi's project I worked on as a I was 19 or something at the time. And uh, back then Levi's weren't being worn by young people because their parents wore them. And it led to a campaign by McCann, I believe in Sydney called original sin, which had nothing to do with age so much. It was just trying to be sexy. Uh, so I've heard this kind of problem before, but, and, and usually I would be like, okay, I've got to get somewhere new with the problem. But I had this vision. I had this vision. So problem Drambuie is what old people drink. And I took that problem as face value at face value. And I played with it. Because what came to mind is a potential audience, and I'm going to call this audience the old at heart, and they're people who've <laughs> aged young. And the thing is, like, if Drambuie is old and needs to go young, let's go for the young old, the people that you know, that we've gone to school with, that we've known in life, who they're 18 or 19, they're kind of like kids by 2021, 20, they're dressing old, acting old, you see them at 25, they look like middle-aged <laughs> middle people, yeah. you know, they're not having that much fun, <laughs> doing all this serious stuff. Uh, so I'm calling the audience the, the old at heart. Uh, and as you know, uh, there's all this, these intergenerational tensions right now, whether it's the obvious one, okay, boomer, but for at least a decade, there have been these tensions because people are living longer than ever. And that older franking credit uh, generation is housing a lot of the wealth, not always passing it down or spending it and then trying to get tax situations that benefit them holding on to their wealth. Uh, and, you know, I just had this vision of sometimes, it's probably in Australia as well, but in the States at least, sometimes I'm out and there's like a kid wearing a, a suit just for fun, like the whole family's dressed up too much. And you're like, you just totally, you, you're even being casual right now. You're not doing anything special. And so I had, I had that kind of person in mind. The funny thing also is that if you think about that gentleman you mentioned, Prince Charles Stuart Edward. So he was 26 mm. when he fled this battle and went to the McKinnon clan and oh. gave them the Drambuie recipe. Guess what he was called? 
he was known as the young pretender and the young chevalier. And so this whole young old thing is kind of funny because 26 is really young to be leading people to their death. I'm just saying uh, yeah. but it's, it's in the story. So I was like, Oh, okay. We've got something here. Now the insight is that I reckon for people who act like that, they think acting old makes old people things happen. So the young are resenting all these old people for having the money, going on cruises, just, I don't know, doing whatever they want. And I, I think the insight here that we could play with is that acting old makes old people things happen. So the strategy is we'll show that Drambui makes the best of aging happen sooner. The solution, <sighs> the solution or the campaign idea is act their age. It's a campaign that shows people how a Drambui lifestyle is a fast track to the life they think they'll never have or if they get it, they'll be too old to enjoy it. Uh, and, and I think, I, th I think this has to be a conservative brand. Like we could definitely have fun with it, but this is not going to be a progressive change the world type of brand. It's going to be a conservative brand. It's going to be for people who believe in the status quo and in individualism, material goods, power, things from the past. Okay. So solution was act their age from the strategy. We'll show that Drambui makes the best of aging happen sooner. And then I, I played with a very simple communications plan and I thought it'd be really interesting for the brand to turn up where young people admire what's old museums, art galleries, libraries, the opera, golf, Fox news, cruises, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> young liberal conferences. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Florida retirement homes, obituaries, cemeteries, morgues, memorials. You know, we could sponsor the Academy Awards when they do that section of who passed away last year. <laughs> Heritage sites and ruins, uh, the old towns of popular cities. And then I, I thought, let's turn this into a three-act uh, three structure for the communications plan. The first one is possibility. I didn't, you know, oh, it's, it's a P-A-R actually, but there's no thought in the acronym. Possibility. So we want to intrigue these people with all the possibilities uh, of acting old when they're young. We're essentially saying, don't just look at old things, become one. All right, so... That's, that's uh, act one of the campaign. Act two is age. I want to age them. We're going to age them. And uh, how do you guys say, how do you pronounce the word B-U-O-Y? Oh, boy. Yeah. So in America, they pronounce boy buoy. Yeah. Right? Oh. So what I thought is we're going to launch a cruise ship and it's going to be called the Drambui Buoy. <laughs> All right, so the Drambui boy, but in America to be the Drambui buoy. Yeah. Uh, the copy for that is the tagline for that is like float like you can't swim because this is about acting old, right? <laughs> and it's a cruise that goes around the Caribbean and then it takes a surprise turn and shifts to the route the Titanic took to get people close to their death so they can reflect about how good getting <laughs> And how getting old, young is totally the right thing to do. And then here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We have a, we have a big hero. This is our tent pole moment. Uh, I hate that phrase. Uh, instead of crashing the Drambui buoy, the Drambui boy or the Drambui buoy would get so close to the ice, everyone on the ship would come out and lick the ice and then sip, sip a shot of Drambui. They wouldn't take the oh. shot. They would just sip it, right? So that's our, that's our moment. That's our big moment. Um, and there'll be other things happening on the ship. Like you have to dress formally at all times. Uh, lawn bowls, line dancing, gin rummy, opera and aber, the entertainment. Uh, there would be daily jewels. So you could kill someone every day. There'd be bingo games. And, you know, you could do some kind of sleep no more theatrical experiences throughout the whole thing. Um, beautiful place to train the trade and for sales incentives for the, you know, top salespeople around the world get to come on this cruise as well. And then the final part of the comms plan is to try to get people to retire young. So we've got possibility, age, and mm -hmm. retire as the, the three parts of the comms plan. Uh, we're going to get them to live together and age together. And what we're going to do is uh, Drambui will actually build retirement villages for the rich young who can't afford uh, the housing that they would like. But, uh, you know, why wait for retirement to retire to a retirement village? You could do that young. <laughs> so that's, that's my plan. What do you think? I think that's absolutely amazing. I don't know. I don't think I've ever heard a response that went so far off the deep end of lateral thinking. <laughs> You're talking about licking ice off the route that the Titanic took uh, and getting close to death existentially uh, while also delving into a tension that I think 
quite embarrassingly, I have been fooled by in the Sydney property market, which is looking for apartments and finding one that was just your price and figuring out it was actually a retirement village. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that, that is probably, I think that's the best response we've had so far. It's fucking, that was, that's that incredible. Was a, that was a cracker. That was, oh, that's a, that that was, was amazing, awesome. amazing what you can do when you sit down for five minutes. Am I right? <laughs> oh, oh, by, the, by the way, by the way, when you go back to Australia, property. Everybody wants to talk about freaking property all the time. It's been like that since at least the 1990s. The rest of the world doesn't really do that. Maybe London, but the rest of the world doesn't do that. It's so funny. Yeah. For some reason, we're obsessed with accumulating wealth by the age of like 25. And it's like the next big, I guess, check mark to show that you're making it. Buy Drambui stock. That's my advice. That's the financial advice. That is financial advice from the son of a it's pitch going podcast. Up. Yeah. It's going up Once Drambui hits this brief and implements Drambui stock or whoever earns Drambui, Bye bye bye. You you spoke about art direction before. How do you see this being art directed? Is is, is this like? Uh, are you going to go with the weird style that they've got at the moment? I assume you looked at some of the ads that they'd done previously. Um, if not, like what 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 type of art direction are you going with? I, look, I, I think if so, you could do this in a, a slightly earnest way. Like it would have to have some earnestness to appeal to the person that I've talked about, right? So I, I will mess with things and have fun and make it absurdist. I do think every brand needs to find its type of absurdism, because absurdism is largely putting things together that really probably shouldn't be together, but then they are, and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and art galleries are full of that stuff. So it doesn't it doesn't have to be. Uh, super crazy and people dressed up in unicorn unicorn costumes in those pink swan floaties that everyone has in Australia on Instagram at least. Uh, I, I think it's got to be glamorous. I think Titanic, maybe a little roaring 1920s uh, mixed with, I'm going to say 5% Burning Man, 5%. Uh, but I think it's got to be a little old timey, but not so that you can smell the mothballs in the art direction. Yeah, got you. So you're talking like a contemporary Great Gatsby sort of art deco mm. feel. There you go. Yeah, perfect. Yes. Yeah, cool. Good okay. collab. Good collaboration. I like yeah. it. Would, would you keep the tone kind of conservative mm. as well? Like as far as the, the copywriting is concerned, would you keep that tone, that, that conservative feel for those young liberals who want to buy this, this thing to look old? <laughs> Well, hey, I, I don't want to patronize my own audience here, so I wouldn't call them that. Uh, I, I, I think you've got to have a hint of chuckle. That's part yeah. of the term. Hint of chuckle. Yeah. And just a little smug. But again, you know, if we're going to do this legitimately, you can't patronize your audience. But it's got to be high-end, uh, frolicking, not mothball smelling, and... Uh, I, I kind of think there's actually something in it, which is why I kept the problem statement as the one that you gave me rather than arguing with it or trying to find the problem behind the problem. Like I was like, I think there's something in there that's actually interesting to play with. So I guess the next step is, Mark, as someone who's sold in a lot of strategies, how do we go about selling this to the, the fine people at Drambui? Well, doesn't alcohol only have two or three types of strategy? I guess we sell this in under provenance slash origin story, and that's a pretty big selling thing in the, in the alcohol world, especially the liquor world like this. Um, well, yeah, I don't know. We just gave away our free thinking, so we're obviously not very good at selling <laughs> things, are we? I, I, I think it'd be funny to just give given it away, and now like, how do we sell it? Because <laughs> and the other thing is, like, if if these were your cli- if these people were your client, then hopefully you've got some kind of relationship into into which you can sell this, but. Uh, I don't know. Let's send them the podcast. Let's see. I'm sure, well, I'm sure we can get to them. Any Jambui employees listening, uh, hit us up and we'll uh, maybe pitch you some more free ideas. We'll make it happen. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I, I think that was, um, that was absolutely amazing. Probably like actually one last question is with the problem statement. Now that you've done the strategy, do you see it working? Yeah, because what I what I do with your PS format or my own little thing called the four points or whatever it is, I'm just trying to keep a word or two, a theme, a theme expressed through a word or two alive. And so the problem statement was Drambui is what old people drink. Mm. We ended on a strategy statement of basically saying, yeah, but we're going to show that Drambui makes the best of aging happen sooner. Like it's about age and being old. So yeah, to me, this does, even though I did it relatively quickly, it does all hang together. Yeah. Arguing with the fact that maybe young people wouldn't end up buying this because it was too expensive. After you've written the strategy, do you think this strategy actually executed now after you've written it 
and kind of like rationalized a way to do this, do you think it would work or do you still think at the very core, the problem really just ends it right at the very start where it's like, you can't afford it. You're never going to buy it. I, I would believe in, I would be curious about getting something like this in front of the audience that I identified. I don't mm. think it's a broader a more mainstream story and I think alcohol from what I understand expensive stuff you have to have that core audience you have to really focus on them and that's why like bottle service is really important for some brands like they start there and that's they build the brand out from that so I think whatever we're talking about here is for that inner circle of not the Drambuie's bottle service but it's that inner circle bottle service mentality um, and you just need to add more irony and make it more outlandish to reach people who might drink it ironically or buy it as a gift once a year to have fun with it. But I, I, I don't know. I, this has stuck with me for a week now and I've been playing with it, sat down and wrote, wrote it out earlier today. I'm like, I, to me, there's an energy in there. So I would say yes. Yeah, brilliant. I think it would too. Hey, Mark, before we let you run, is there anything you want to plug to our 13 listeners? Um, anything that I want to plug? I don't know. I'm, oh, I'm releasing a book soon. Strategies your words. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the Kickstarter for that. Yeah. Yeah. Check out my book. Uh, it'll be available all over the place. I still have to have to work through the logistics, but definitely, uh, it's like eighty thousand words. Took me about a year and a half to put together properly. It's about three or four months intense, and then a few months here and there. And it's you know a lot of stuff I've learned from people I, I worked with in in Sydney. And um, you know, it's hard to read back your own words because you kind of cringe in parts, but also I've enjoyed reading it back. So I'm like, okay, I think it's good. I think it's okay. It's going to be okay. Uh, we hit the Kickstarter goal in two days, which is incredible. Raised well, basically like 50 grand Australian. Uh, that blows me away. It's, I could have made two or three hip hop magazines for that back in the day. So, <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. And, and this is going to be the first of, of many products that I do. And maybe even if I can set up a way of doing all of this, I'll release other people's projects in the future you know i kind of want to help people who are a bit like us be able to establish themselves and feed themselves through the stuff that we all do outside of timesheets so that's something that i'm pursuing hey man well if if that's the intention it's definitely working we thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us all the way from new york um yeah you're an inspiration dude we we love your work and and keep it up brother all right yeah, yeah let's do another one soon hugs good to see you you're cute in person too take care <laughs> Even in the footy shots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah.